0: Isaac Morehouse, welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. What is the Foundation for Economic Education? Besides being a sponsor of this, the Isaac Morehouse podcast, Fee is one of the leading, I would say, the leading voices for clear economic thinking in the country today. And not just today. Fee's history is amazing. It was founded in 1946 as really the only prominent voice for the ideas of freedom, limited government, free markets, voluntary exchange, and as Leonard Reed, the founder, would say, anything that's peaceful. Uh, this was not an easy position to be in at the time when planned economies were the norm and Fee was the home of such luminaries as Ludwig von Mises, Milton Friedman, and a great many other phenomenal thinkers, writers, communicators. It has been a bastion for the ideas of economic liberty through their magazine, The Freeman, their online resources at fee.org, and most important today, their in-person seminars for young people. If you are between the ages of 14 and 26, there is nothing like a fee seminar. Three days, usually at a great location somewhere around the country, Austin, Texas, Orange County, California, New Hampshire, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina. And you're together with 50 or 100 other young people who want to be there and engage the ideas of economics and freedom. Check it out, fee.org slash seminars, and you too can join a heritage that includes some of the most amazing economic thinkers the world has ever known. fe.org slash seminars. Tell them I sent you from the Isaac Morehouse podcast. Praxis is proud to sponsor this episode of the podcast. Praxis is about living the life you want, living on your own terms, getting off the conveyor belt. What does that mean specifically? If you're a young person, high school, college age, you've kind of been taught that there's a conveyor belt. You sit down, you shut up, you obey the rules, you get good grades, and you'll be moved along and then eventually handed a ticket to a job and a house and two and a half kids and a bunch of debt. That's bull crap. You need to create your own life. You need to decide what you want. Look at the opportunities around us that are more plentiful than it has ever existed in the history of mankind. And you need to get out and start exploring and experimenting. Stop doing things you hate. If you're bored in the classroom, if it's not bringing you any joy, get out, engage with the world, try some things. If you get accepted into practice, Praxis is a highly competitive, highly competitive program. But if you get accepted in, we will place you with an entrepreneur at a growing dynamic business where you'll be working 30 hours a week. At the same time, you'll be going through a series of professional development challenges to meet your goals that you've set out. You start the program and say, here's what I want at the end. Here are the tangible outcomes. I want a job offer. I want to launch an online business. I want to whatever it might be. We take that and use that as our measuring stick to decide whether we're doing our job. Our advisors work with you to reach those goals. They help you. They push you. They challenge you like a fitness trainer would. But ultimately, you're the one in the driver's seat. We provide you with an amazing curriculum, resources on everything from liberal arts topics like economics and history to business, entrepreneurship, life skills, and every, you know digital branding, building a website. It is intense, but it will change your life discoverpraxis.com. Check it out. Welcome back, TK. Let's talk. Let's talk learning. Um, why, why is it so hard? Why are most of us Really bad at learning and why is it so hard and 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 what is the difference between? learning for oneself and Whatever what whatever other form of imbibing information um, is common
1: Well, first of all when when I think about learning I think about a process that can never be meaningfully divorced from doing it for yourself If you're not doing it for yourself or for something that appeals to your self-interest, then I'm not even sure what it is you're doing. You may be following orders, you may be taking instructions, you may be attempting to avoid pain or difficulty, but I don't consider it to be learning. But let's unpack that a little bit in order to make it clear. I understand learning to be the process of seeking out ideas and experiences that will help the learner create results that matter to them. These results can be tangible results, like making money or developing a new skill, or they can be intangible results, like um, learning how to be at peace with myself or increasing the amount of fulfillment that I have on a spiritual or psychological level. But in order for it to be learning, there has to be some sort of goal on the part of the person seeking out information and experience, and everything that they're doing is designed to help them move closer to that goal. Where, how most people learn about learning, however, is different from that. If you, if you take the approach to learning that is you know, you know, uh, th- that is endorsed in schooling, let's take reading, for instance. How do most people learn how to read, and, and, and what's, the, what's the mentality that's internalized as they're learning how to read? Most people learn how to read because an authority figure in their life believes this is an important skill for them to have, that authority figure has their own ideas about the type of stuff that children need to read, and so they make them read. So most people are exposed to reading not as a tool for satisfying their curiosities or helping them achieve their goals, but they approach reading as something that authority figures think is important and, and something that authority figures demand of them. Moreover, when they read in schools, authority figures are continually asking them. They're not only assigning them what to read, but they're asking them certain kinds of questions and asking them to engage what they read in a certain kind of way. So people inherit this mentality that says, when I read, I'm reading because it is important to someone who has power in my society, and I'm reading for the purpose of having reactions and responses to the text that will either that will impress them sufficiently enough for me to get some kind of grade or reward or a compliment or a credential and so people kind of have this mentality that you know when i sit down and read or when i listen to a lecture or whatever it may be i'm doing this for someone else and i'm doing this for the way my reaction and response will shape my reputation in the world and i think that's very tragic because it's not selfish at all. And learning ought to be far more selfish than that. When you sit down down to read a book or listen to a podcast, your thinking ought to be dominated by a conviction that this is my time, my energy, going out in the direction of consuming this content and this experience better be valuable to me in helping me get what I want out of life. Does that that make sense?
0: Absolutely, that word selfish that's really what sticks out to me it's not selfish enough learning should be and and at its best it is utterly and completely selfish I want to get something out of this I want to extract something I, I I'm always reminded of the image of uh, from the Bible where where um, Jacob is wrestling with an angel and he's like I will not let you go until you bless me like I demand to get something out of this right and he like you know, gets in this physical violent fight because he's going to extract value out of this experience. That's what I feel like the learning experience at its best. That's what it's really all about. And I think there's a there's a huge problem with with not being selfish enough in your learning. And I think you and I, um, and we've come a long way. I don't think we, we necessarily, uh, maybe we can talk about our backgrounds and some of the things that our parents did and didn't do that maybe helped or hindered. But I think we've both figured out how to be really selfish in our pursuit of knowledge, in our in our learning. And our personalities are so different that it manifests in very different ways, but we're both very selfish. So for example, approaching a book, when I approach a book, I don't care so much about whether the book is true or false, good or bad, uh, popular or unpopular, whether I'm supposed to be someone who understands it or gets it, uh, whether I actually do get it, whether, you know, like, I'm not all that concerned about all that stuff. I I probably used to be. And I've gotten to the point where all I care about is what can I gain of use? What tools can I put in my toolkit? What new language, what new conceptual tools, what new lenses, ways of looking at the world, what new stories can I extract from this experience, whether or not I like the author or know anything about him, whether or not I think their main thesis is right or wrong, whether or not I think it's good or bad in terms of morally good or in terms of well-written, whatever else what can I gain? That's what I'm in it for. What can I gain that helps me achieve my own goals? And if I realize pretty early in, I'm not gaining anything, then I'll put the book aside. I don't care. I don't care if it's considered a good book, a bad, whatever. I'm just, I'm not going to have the patience. I'm going to move on. Your selfishness manifests in a different way. You keep digging deeper and you keep thinking there's going to be something. I'm going to get something out of this. And you usually always do. Um, so, so we kind of, we, we take different actions with, with, uh, You know, regards to that, but I think once I freed myself to be like fundamentally selfish, self-interested in my consumption of ideas and information and my, my sort of education process, the amount that I gained was so much more vast, and the joy and pleasure I had in it, the value of it, the usefulness of it, and even my usefulness and value to other people, right? Even though that's not what I was going at, like that's enhanced as well, because I've used, gained a bunch of tools for myself in that process. And I think I see a lot um, of what I assume to be, and I don't want to assume too much about people's motives, but I see a lot of people who really have a hard time approaching things in that selfish way. Instead, it's like, okay, let me look at this book And then let me immediately signal to the world in a review or a Facebook post or whatever what I think is right and wrong about the book, what's correct, what's not correct, where I stand in relation to it, whether or not I want to be seen as someone who likes this book, whether or not I I want to prove to people, just like we have to prove to teachers, that I sort of got what the main argument was. And then I have my rebuttal or my reason for agreeing. Let me sort of do the things necessary for a test. Or let me immediately just say I'm unimpressed. I'm unimpressed. I don't like this. Well, it's, it's... you don't like it, so what? Did it do, was there anything useful in it? And if not, why did you finish it? Is always is always my question. Like, we don't care what you thought of it. Did it do anything for you? Can it do anything for you? Is there any possible way you could read it, any interpretation and we've talked about charitable interpretation before through which it could have done something for you. Um and if not, I mean if so, why not interpret it that way? Like look for excuses to gain value from something. Look for interpretations through which it could become valuable to you, um, instead of just looking for ways you can sort of signal to the world where you stand. And does that make sense? Am I getting anywhere with this?
1: Oh yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Now let's contrast that with school-oriented reading. And let's say I'm creating some kind of lesson plan that will help people engage a text in a way that will exercise critical thinking. I'll have them ask questions like, identify three elements in the text that you agree with and tell me why identify three elements in the text that you disagree with and tell me why what do you think the author was trying to say here do you agree with that do you disagree with that now i think there is a time and a place for that kind of thinking however we should be real about the fact that there's something that's left out of those exercises and that is hey you as an individual what matters to you? What do you want to create? What do you want? What are your priorities? And how can you use what you just read to help you create that, to help you move closer to that? And so when people don't have that exercise, then the only way they know how to meaningfully engage a text is by reading something and saying, all right, let me let you guys know what I agree with and what I disagree with, and here are my arguments why. And that's that's almost all people know how to do. And If you watch the way people respond to content, just I I know a lot of people say never waste your time reading comments and I get the arguments for that and there's a lot of that that I do agree with. But as an exercise, take some time and just go look at the comments to videos on YouTube. Go look at the comments and arguments that people get into Pursuit on blog. Pursue
0: caution, and especially if it's on YouTube with like maybe a, a hazmat, like biohazard suit on just to protect yourself from, you know, intellectual diseases and whatever else is going on around there.
1: <laughs> Seriously.
0: But, but, I, I love, yeah. by the way, I love how you pause like three seconds and then you're like, oh, okay, that was a joke. I'm supposed to laugh. And then you laughed. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm, I'm getting better though. My reaction time to comedy is improving.
0: <laughs> okay, so why why are we supposed to go read comments? It sounds horrible to me. You got to give me a good reason.
1: Because it'll provide you with a lot of good illustrations for the many ways in which we exercise this tendency to be distracted from learning. So, for instance, one one way in which this can be seen is post a quote that is supposed to be inspiring or informing. But make sure the quote is by someone who um, maybe was accused of, you know, um, you know, you know, illegally gambling or make sure it's a quote that was by someone who was accused of some kind of scandal, no matter how big or small you will almost always find a comment that says, yeah. I don't know, but you know, this guy, you know, he he stole a lot of money from people. Uh, one example of this actually is with Steve Jobs. With with his recent passing, there were a lot of articles and posts written in tribute to Steve Jobs, and you 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 can hardly find a single one that that where there wasn't someone who felt the need to to balance all of it out by saying, "Yeah, but he also kind of was a jerk and he also had, you know, this and that about him." Now, in case anyone misunderstands, I'm not against criticism, I'm not against being factual, and I'm not here to defend people's lack of integrity or anything like that. I think there is a time and place for it. However, I I continue to be amazed at the, the absence of selfishness characterized by people who can't get the value of an idea because they're hung up on something about the person who espouses the idea. And my attitude when I'm reading... I'm so determined to learn. I'm so determined to use what it is I'm learning to create what matters to me that if there's some imperfection in the person, it's just sort of like, okay, all right, uh, you know, here's a flaw they have. Okay, all right, I I get this. I think this is erroneous. I disagree with that part, but I think I get what they mean. But even if I don't get what they mean, I have a way that I can use that for this. And so I got what I needed. I'm out of here. Like I'm too selfish to spend any time, you know, Uh, debating the people who want to go over this nuance point or anything like that, even though, again, there can be a time and a place for that, you know? So I don't look at this as a criticism of criticism or as saying you should never disagree. But I think when, when you are spending your time reading things or engaging materials, I think you ought to be so selfish about your own personal development that your highest priority should be Asking yourself the question every step of the way, how can I use what is before me to, to more effectively create the results I want out of you life? Know, there,
0: there's kind of a question that I ask myself a lot is, Okay, am okay, am I just being a responder? My My time is too valuable to just be a responder. So if I'm going around responding to articles on Medium, Facebook posts, whatever else, all the time, just responding, thinking of ways that this could be wrong, here's an objection. I'm not using my time valuable enough based on my own definition – I don't want to be a responder. I want to be a creator. And if I see something and I don't get any value out of it, I just want to move on. I don't need to stop and tell people, hey, I don't think this is valuable for the following reasons. That right there, it almost is like, it almost defies the very claim itself. If I don't think it's valuable, why am I spending my valuable time telling you that? Just move along, you know. Um, I know we've had an episode before, um, early early in this podcast, uh, on criticism and critics and call out culture, and I encourage you guys to to go look at that if you want to hear more on that topic specifically. But TK, I want to I want to sort of ask you two things. One, you have a really interesting concept uh, that we've talked about before, which is regarding the schooling process and standing in line, as in like physically standing in a single file line, which is a major part of the school experience, but it has a much deeper meaning and implications that that go far beyond just the physical act of standing in a single file line. Um, explain a little bit on your your idea about standing in line and what that represents and what that does to a person's ability to selfishly learn.
1: Absolutely. So first, I think it's very important that we be philosoph- about the rules that children have to follow in school because anytime you go to an institution and you spend eight or more hours, or heck, five or more hours following certain rules, that's going to that's going to cultivate a mentality that will affect the way you approach the real world. So it's not as if you can go to school and have to walk in a straight line, have to sit down and pay attention to an authority figure, have to do all these different sorts of things. And, and, and then when you go out into the real world, that's gonna have nothing to do with the mentality that you have. The rules you follow in school will affect the way you approach everyday life. And many of the rules that children have to follow in school, although they may not be inherently bad, although those rules might be neutral in many cases, most of them don't come into existence because of some uh, process of trying to consciously figure out how to make children more intelligent or creative. Most of these rules, or many of them, come into existence for no other reason than that authority figures need effective ways to manage children. So the the concept of children walking in a straight line, for instance, there's nothing about walking in a straight line that's inherently better than just walking however you want to walk. However, if I'm a teacher and I'm managing 20 to 30 children and and a bunch of unruly, high-energy kids and it's my job to transport them from one location to another, then it might be easier for me to create a rule that says you all have to walk in straight lines. Now, it doesn't mean the rule is bad. It doesn't mean that it's bad for me to want an effective system of management. But it is important to note that I'm not creating this rule because I think it makes my children smarter. I'm creating this rule because it makes my life as a manager of them more convenient. Let's take a different example, like eating in the classroom. In most classrooms, you you can't do things like chew bubble gum or you can't sit there and eat a bag of Doritos and and, drink a can of soda or or eat a donut while your history teacher is going over the lesson. Most most, schools, you wouldn't be able to do this sort of thing. there's nothing inherently wrong with these things. You know, if, if the parent is okay with what the children wants to eat, th- there's nothing about eating or chewing gum that makes it more difficult for you to learn. But that presents a problem for the p- the person that's responsible for managing these kids. You're going to have some kids who um, don't have anything to eat and they're going to be distracted and they're going to want it. You're going to have all sorts of things like that that happen, just, just as if you're a parent. And, and you give your kids some snacks. The, Those the, kids the, are no, find the
0: out. no chewing gum rule, uh, yeah, there's, there's absolutely nothing involved there about, hey, kids, it'll be better for you to learn if you're not chewing gum. It's, uh, hey, kids, look, the janitor's tired of peeling gum off from under the desk.
1: <laughs> right, right. And, and it's understandable, right? Like, like, like I have no beef with the janitor. It totally makes sense, right? And if I'm a janitor, I'm going to want the same thing. But again, it's important to realize that these rules exist, because people are a part of institutions where they are incentivized to, to create regulations that make it easier for them to manage certain creative challenges that arise for them. It's not because someone's getting together in a room saying, how can we make children smarter or more creative? And then some person gives a scientific argument for why walking in straight lines generates creative thinking. That's not how they come about. Now, now why, why is this important? Because These types of rules apply to so much more than just how a a child must walk down the halls or whether or not they can eat in class. These kinds of incentives also affect the very way we understand what it means to learn. So if, if, if if you are an institution and you're in the business of credentializing people, validating their educational journey, then you are compelled to define learning in a way that involves quantifying people's progress and performance for the sake of comparing it with that of other people. So that means I can't just let you read, okay? Because someone's going to ask me to prove to them that you're actually learning when you read. I have to answer to parents, I have to answer to administrators, so I can't just allow you to read. I have to also have a way of testing you, having a way of quantifying this experience. So now I'm gonna create a bunch of um, Test, create exams, create activities and exercises so I can be able to compare what's going on when you read with what's going on with another person who reads. How does this affect the student? Well, the student learns to react and respond to authority figures in a way that gets them whatever that credential or reward is that they're seeking or that helps them avoid trouble because nobody wants to get an F, nobody wants to be sent to detention, nobody wants to get in trouble with their parents, nobody wants to be held up. And they understand that in order to avoid the things they don't want or get the things they do want, they can't just learn in accordance with their own idea of learning. They can't just read a book for fun. They have to be able to say specific things and do specific things that make someone else go, Ah, yeah. You you have truly learned, you know? And and I think that process actually interferes with learning because it gets in the way of not only individuality, but it gets in the way of the very kind of selfishness that we're talking about. A, a student has to take their own selfish goals and their ability to use the text to facilitate the creation of those goals and make it subservient to this process of making sure they are telling the teacher what they need to hear in order to signal to them, yes, 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 I have learned. And, and, and many of your best learners will complain that school often gets in the way of learning because it fills them up with so much busy work that they have to do in order to impress authority figures. Well,
0: and you, and, and you about, can actually... Oh, go ahead,
1: no, go ahead. Well, my, my last thing is you, you can actually see this in effect in the adult world, you can see the product of this schooling mentality where many adults lack the selfishness to engage material in in the way that we're talking about. And and whenever, whenever they come across anything, uh, they, they sort of go into this routine of, Reacting and responding to it in a way that's going to signal to other people, hey, I'm not the kind of person that can be deceived, or hey, I'm not the kind of person that can be fooled, or hey, uh, you know, like, um, you know, you know, I, I'm I'm this kind of person, and, and and that's the dominant way that people engage content rather than just saying, hey, what do I want to learn and how can I
0: use this. Well, and you think about that signal, you know, when when you're you're conditioned that reading, for example, is. To be done with a specific result, a specific outcome that you can answer specific questions and give a little essay on what chapter Two was about that your teacher finds satisfactory, the reason that students uh, respond to that is to avoid pain, whether you know emotional pain whatever to avoid the unhappy feeling of failure. You failed this assignment, you failed this class, you're doing a bad job, you're not doing what you're supposed to, you're not learning, those are all negative things. And so people become conditioned to consume information, to read, to, to you know, imbibe uh, books and, and content with a mind to, okay, I've gotta be able to produce something that helps me avoid pain. I've gotta be able to create a signal that keeps me safe from embarrassment, from failure, et cetera. And I think this this sort of pain avoidance, avoidance of embarrassment, sending a signal that protects you from any vulnerability is so damaging to genuine exploration because instead of, it's a very risk averse attitude. And I think having a risk aversion is the worst way to approach uh, the exploration of ideas, the the seeking of truth and value from what you're learning. It's, you know, okay, how can I, get the bare minimum thing necessary to let the world not think that I'm stupid, to let people be uh, impressed enough to give me a pass. Can I, can I, you know, can I be unimpressed? We've talked about this before too, with criticism. Can I say, eh? I didn't really buy it. I thought this was kind of weak. That's enough for people to be like, Oh, okay. They read it and they weren't impressed. Um, Cool. I'll let that pass. Right. Whereas to do anything else is to open yourself up to potentially being embarrassed It's to say, you know, wow, I love this book. It's really changing me. And someone would be like, really, how do you respond to this? And if you don't have a response, you look stupid. Even though you may not be done yet, you're still in the process of exploring. You don't even need a response. You don't need to be held accountable for every feeling and change intellectually you go through as you take in this knowledge. But you feel like you have to. You, you, you've got this sort of risk avoidance strategy, uh, always looking to produce a signal that will shield you from any any potential embarrassment or, or harm. Uh, and I think that's incredibly damaging. All right, so let me ask you, T. Okay. Hey,
1: hey, real quick there's a flip side to that too students not only want to avoid pain but there's also a positive side right where, where we like the way it feels to get praise so i might also be motivated to learn and come up with things to say because it makes my teachers and my parents very proud of me and while there's nothing inherently wrong with loving the reception of praise and you know um hating the reception of pain, both of these things are two sides of the same coin because it's, 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 it's externally guided. I'm still learning for reasons that have to do with receiving praise from other people or avoiding pain for, from other people based on their disappointment or satisfaction with me. And it still has nothing to do with my own curiosities and goals. So both of them are equally damaging.
0: Yeah, let me uh, let me go look at what Twitter is saying and Facebook uh, and make sure that I'm safe before I give my opinion on, uh, you know, this movie <laughs> or this book. Um, so, TK, how have you I mean, was this a fight for you? Was this a struggle for you to sort of reclaim the selfish uh, approach to learning to, as you've said before, to read irresponsibly, to 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 go after um, you know, consuming ideas for no other purpose than the value they bring to you, the usefulness they bring to you. Is this something you had to to fight against or overcome? I, I know, I know in my case, I really being homeschooled and, and pretty loosely, um, my mom was pretty lax. I had very little pressure to read, period. And I hardly did any. I just didn't care about reading. It was It was not really uh, interesting to me. And I didn't, I didn't need to do that much of it. I mean, maybe I did sometimes to get the little free, um, mini pizza at pizza hut with the reading, <laughs> the reading club Probably <laughs> fake, faked my way through a few books, but, um, but until I, I reached a point where I started to become interested in specific subjects and read purely for myself. So I didn't have much to contrast it with. I didn't have as much of that sort of schooled mentality, but did you, it was that something you had to fight?
1: So so for me, this this one particular thing has never been a fight because, I mean, my parents have taught me from the beginning that if if something is true, it's true. And if something is false, it's useless. And, you know, pursue the truth. And it doesn't matter who the truth comes from or where it comes from. All that matters is that it's true. And so I've never had an issue with Oh, yeah. I I mean, I know the guy just said it's two plus two equals four, but he's a convicted murderer. So, uh, no, I mean, if he's a convicted murderer, then I'm not going to close my eyes, fall backwards and expect him to catch me. But he's just said two plus two equals four. And I'm not going to be distracted from that fact either. So my parents taught me to make a really strong distinction between the truth of what is being said, the truth or value of what is being said and anything controversial or sketchy about the person who's sang it. And part of that comes from the fact that my parents have always been very honest about human beings. They basically made it clear to me from the beginning that if you're looking for truth to come from a source of perfection, then you're really never going to be able to learn, because you have to rely on human beings. And you have to interact with human beings. And it doesn't matter what their job is. Um, it doesn't matter what their position is. They are going to be imperfect. Uh, another element of that is my parents allowed me to read what I wanted to read when I was a child. They didn't really influence me a lot by making me read stuff that they thought was important. They, they allowed me to read comic books. They allowed me to go to the library and pick out my own books. I even remember an interaction I had with the kid at class when I was in fifth grade I, uh, you know, we would have five to ten minutes of reading time if we got our our classroom work done, and I would, you know, sometimes pull out my comic books or pull out my Encyclopedia Brown books, and I had a kid tell me one time or ask me, he said, "Your parents let you read that stuff?" And I said, "Yeah, they let me read what I want." And he said, "Oh, my parents don't let me read comic books." I said, "Why?" He said, "They think they're dummy books." And I remember just feeling sorry for the kid. I didn't feel apologetic about what I was doing. I, I just felt sorry for him. Like, man, that's messed up. Like, because you're missing out on some really good stories because of your parents' elitist ideas about what you ought to be reading. That's why I'm like 10 times of a better reader than you.
0: you know? Um, <laughs> did you always like, like reading as a kid? Uh, and did you, did you like all forms of reading? Or did you dislike assigned readings and, and things like that in the classroom context?
1: Well, I've always liked reading because I didn't learn how to read from school. I learned how to read from my parents. And more importantly, I learned learned very early on to associate reading not as something that's objectively important, but as a tool for satisfying my own curiosities and for helping me to improve my life. So my parents gave me a lot of freedom. So reading for me wasn't some kind of punishment for being a bad person, nor was it this sort of thing that... You have to do if you want to be somebody in life. It was like, no, this is for you. You're the one that's going to be spending your time and energy engaging these books. So this is for you to explore your own mind, explore the world and enjoy the benefit that can come from engaging a diverse range of perspectives about different things. Once I got into school and teachers started to assign things for me to read, that became kind of a struggle because I felt like it got in the way of my learning because I had less time to read what I wanted to read, because I had to spend so much time reading what someone else wanted me to read. And even when I enjoyed the things that were assigned to me, again, school often got in the way of that, because in order to be able to answer questions and pass tests, I I sometimes had to set aside things that were important to me individually and spend more time doing the things that would make me good at Deceiving my authority figures into thinking that I was smart, right? Um, So, for instance, if I'm reading a book for myself, I might actually only read two pages and spend about two hours just thinking about the implications of what I read. Or I might hate most of the book, but find chapter five to be amazing. And I might read chapter five like six times and just not you know read the other stuff as much because it's useless to me. But in school, I wouldn't be able to do that. I would have to make sure I'm going at the teacher's pace, giving equal attention to this or that, make sure I'm memorizing some dude's name who I don't care about from chapter nine. And so that would often take away from learning. It never ruined learning for me, uh, but it just sort of got in the way. And I had to learn how to be creative and figure out how to make time for my life, the things that really mattered when my teachers were demanding so much of it.
0: So, um, I'm gonna ask you a, a final question uh, because then this conversation will cease to be useful to me, so I might as well just move on. Um, <laughs> um, how would you recommend if someone's like, "Yeah, I kind of see myself in in some of the stuff you know you've described"? Like, I I've had a hard time not approaching learning, reading in any way other than, okay, I've got to I've got to sort of get the relevant things. I've got to decide which side of the arguments I'm on. I've got to decide if I think this is good or bad. I've got to you know, let people know whether I'm impressed or unimpressed, you know, that's, that's me. And I want to reclaim the ability to just read selfishly, to just learn for purely my own uses and what's valuable to me and not feel that pressure to, to prove to people, um, you know, what I know and, and, and all that sort of thing, that, that sort of extrinsic motivation. What would you advise someone who wants to recapture that and, and begin to learn selfishly?
1: I I would say two things. Number one, always look for what works, right? Because reading is for you. So when you're reading something or when you're studying something, look for what works and understand that the presence of elements that are not useful don't negate the value of what does work. So don't be distracted by the presence of elements that aren't useful because there will be useless things, incorrect things, and anything that you read. And if you allow yourself to be distracted from that, you'll never learn from any source because there's always something imperfect to be distracted by. But here's the second thing I would say. I would say, understand that criticism and disagreement are very valuable, but to take time expressing criticism and disagreement is a potentially costful activity. So before you do it, make sure you hold yourself to a high standard and ask yourself, how, how worthy of my time is it to do this? Right? So like, I, I think it's valuable to to point out the error in ideas. I think it's valuable to talk about which ideas are dangerous or deadly or harmful to society. But I, I think it's very easy to over inflate the impact that we'll have by pointing out every possible way in which what a person said could be misconstrued or misused. and And that can very quickly lead to a life where, you're just commenting on everybody's Facebook status. You're commenting on everybody's YouTube video because you literally believe that the universe will suffer if you're not pointing out all the errors that exist out there or all the, you know, nuanced ways in which an idea might be abused or misunderstood. And if you're doing that too much. Free yourself you gotta-
0: from that. You can you can let bad ideas be uh Milton in Areopagitica which is this phenomenal little pamphlet about about free speech he has this great line where he says um and I'm I'm paraphrasing here I'm I'm not as good at the old English poetic writing but he says something about let truth and falsehood grapple um and you know let let truth let her grapple with falsehood in the field and trust that at the end of the day she will stand. You don't need to go around policing every bit of falsehood and feeling stressed that someone's writing something that could be misinterpreted or could be dangerous or could offend some group or could come off the wrong way. Like let it go. Let let truth grapple with falsehood on her own and she'll stand over time.
1: So 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 let me give you an example of how this plays out for me. Let's say uh, you know, I read a Zig Ziglar quote somewhere. Let's say you put it up on Facebook. I know you'd never post Zig Ziglar. You're not that. You're not as cheesy as me. But but let's say Zig Ziglar has a quote that says, I
0: like Zig Ziglar, but I probably wouldn't post that. That's true.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, because you're one of those guys who likes to to zag when everybody else is zigging. Oh, well
0: Well played.
1: That that might be my best pun ever. Um, (laughs) All right, so Zig has a quote that says, you can get everything you want if you help enough people get what they want. Now, here's what it's like to read that with a selfish perspective. You look at that and you say, all right, I get it. Zig is talking about the power of value creation. He's saying to me that if there's something that I want out of life, I'm much more likely to get that if I focus less on trying to get people to give me something and I focus more on using what I already have to create value for them. All right, how how can I put that to work in my life? That's the selfish perspective. I'm off and running with that idea. Now, a tendency for a lot of people is to look at that and say, wait a minute, he just said I can get everything I want if I help enough people get what they want. That's not always true in every possible circumstance. And furthermore, there's no technique for getting everything I want, not even value creation, because nobody gets what they want all the time. Now, I can can start writing a response to that that's like two paragraphs long about how this idea has to be put in proper context. And, And although I think there's a time and place for it, I think before you spend your time doing that, because there is a trade-off, you got to take away from your learning time and your creativity time to do that. So before you do something like that, you should ask yourself, do I really need to say this? Is, Is there really any evidence to think that the world needs me to be the guy to let people know? This advice doesn't apply to every possible circumstance. Is this really the best use of my time right now? And and that's a personal call. I know there are some people who are listening to this, and they will always feel like it is the best use of their time to protect the world from possible misunderstandings.
0: And and, and in those cases, maybe it actually is. Maybe their opportunity cost is really, really low. (laughs) (laughs) And and on that note, and on that note. Hey, I'm going (laughs) to. I'm going to end with this. note. this is, I found the quote from Milton. It's so much better than, than how I put it. And, and I'm going to end with this unless you have something, something else to add to Milton's words. You ready?
1: <laughs> I love how you just set me up as a guy who either has to yeah. shut up or present himself as someone who thinks he's better than Milton. Yep. I can't do that. man. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I- so here's John Milton from Ario Pagitica. Though all the winds of doctrine were let loose to play upon the earth so truth be in the field, we do injuriously by licensing and prohibiting <clears throat> or commenting on Facebook to misdoubt her strength. Let her and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. Love it. One of my favorites. TK, you you gonna add anything to Milton's words? Or are you just gonna let truth stand?
1: I, I'm tempted to do like a Stephen A wrap up, but no, do it, man, I'm going to.
0: Come speak. on, we, we, it's been, we need Stephen A to come back. Hit us with one.
1: Well, first of all, let me be absolutely clear that if there's anybody in the world that can add to Milton's words, it is certainly not me. I just spoke with Milton just the other day, and I let him know that out of Kobe Bryant, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and LeBron James, there is absolutely nobody on the planet that's had a greater impact on the philosophical evolution of the human species than my main man, Milton. So with that having been said, it is absolutely incredulous, utterly ridiculous, unbelievably stupidity for me to even entertain the idea for a single second that you, I, or anybody else on God's great earth would have anything to add to that man's words.
0: Hey, Stephen A. Smith, thank you for joining us on this enlightening discussion. Now, everybody, go read a book selfishly. Peace, peace, peace.